Hello everyone and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike and today I'm going to be alone on the podcast. Kason's not feeling well, so uh, hopefully he will uh, recover this week and be with us again uh, next week. Um, however, there is a ton of material this week for me to cover. This is going to be a very long podcast. Um, this will probably be one of those podcasts that goes over two hours long. We have we have a split fan base on this. We have some people who are like, oh, that's too long. I don't want to listen to it. But we have some people who listen while they're commuting or while they're at work or while they're grinding in a video game, and they really like the longer ones. For So for those people, this will be a good one, hopefully. Um, the, the, the one problem is that I'm doing it by myself. Some people don't like that. Some people really prefer to have a, a guest. Um, and... Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have one this week, so it's just me. Hello to everyone in the chat who just came in. Um, I'm going to be relying a lot on the chat, actually. Uh, give me feedback. I'll be trying to keep my eye on it. Uh, there's we're, we're discussing a heated debate topic today, one that's pretty divisive, and we'll get to that in a minute. First, I want to talk about some news from this week. The first one is... Uh, Last week we talked about uh, Google Stadia, uh, the fact that Google's coming out with a gaming service. Um, you know, I think in their own description of it, they they sort of um, made a comparison to Netflix, like the Netflix of gaming. Um, but there weren't there were certain details we we don't really know about it that we had questions about. Anyways, we had mentioned last week that uh, Apple was sure to get into this. Maybe they had already announced that they were going to. But this week, um, we had more of an official announcement on Apple Arcade, which is going, going to be Apple's uh, gaming service. So, let me just read a little bit uh, on this article about what it is. Uh, Apple Arcade, due out in the fall, will be a subscription service that delivers unlimited ad-free playtime in a suite of games. That's what I was, uh, I guess, wondering... Or, or I was assuming that the Google Stadia would be because they... Thank you, Walrus, for the uh, donation there. Um, I was wondering if Google's going to be that because they, they brought up the comparison to Netflix of gaming. So I was thinking it was going to be some kind of subscription service. Some people were saying, no, it'll probably be more of a you buy the game still, but you just play it through the cloud. Um, Apple Arcade is going to be a subscription service. We already know that. Some of these games will be funded by Apple, and some will be exclusive to the Apple Arcade platform. We don't know how much Apple Arcade will cost, what kind of revenue cut developers will get, or much about titles. Um, what, what Apple does appear to be leaning into is the curation of games. Apple Arcade ga games will redefine games and be curated based on originality, quality, creativity, fun, and their appeal to players of all ages, the company said in a press release. Selection will happen not only through funding, but also through the method in which games are promoted within Apple Arcade. If a game is promoted heavily on the arcade platform, a game could be a hit. But as, but as can happen in the App Store, it could get buried without the right promotion. Anyways. Um, so... They have a video, and I'm a little bit worried to play this because 
Um, people know Hat89 and uh, Eric Velhart from our Discord community. They do a podcast as well on RPGs. They showed some footage of this and uh, had some problems, but for the most part, what they show in this video is a bunch of what seems to be Apple-funded games that are coming to this. And the one that I think is of most note to the community is this game, Fantasian, by none other than Hironobu Sakaguchi, creator of Final Fantasy. And what he's doing with this is pretty interesting. So I'm just going to put this on the screen real quick and you can kind of see what he's what he's doing. It looks pretty awesome. Um, I'll pause it for a second just to bring up the fact that we have said a number of times, especially during my like Final Fantasy IX playthrough that I'm doing on Final Fantasy Fridays, um, I want to see the return of a game made in the style of the the PlayStation 1, but with like modern technology, modern graphics, right? So using fixed camera angles and pre-rendered backgrounds and stuff like that. Now this isn't that, but this is still really a cool idea that I think fits in the vein of trying to do something unique visually with the game. So they're actually building the environments you see here and photographing them. And then they put a 3D character onto that environment that they built by hand. You see that? Isn't that crazy? I think that that's a really cool idea. We don't know really much of anything about the game aside from what was just shown there. <laughs> but it, it seems like a really cool idea and it could have a really interesting... Um, a really interesting visual aesthetic that could shake things up a bit, be really unique to it. And, um, of course, if it's being made by Sakaguchi, there will be a storytelling focus. And uh, it'll it's going to be trying for something different than we've really seen before. So, I have no idea. I'm, I'm guessing since Apple Arcade is coming out in the fall sometime... Uh, and they've announced this as one of the projects that hopefully it would be a launch sort of like title in Apple Arcade. I don't know if that's true. It's conjecture on my part. I don't know how far along they are on this game. But it looks pretty cool. So just wanted to make people aware of that. Um, Diorama-esque says Lego Dog. Yes, that's the word that they use to describe it. Uh, diorama. So um, I don't really use any Apple products. I, I don't know if I will play this, but I will keep my eye on it because it does look really cool, and hopefully it will be brought to other platforms other than just Apple Arcade eventually. Anyways, moving on to the next topic here. Um, Monolith Soft, the creators of Xenoblade Chronicles, um, same developers who... Well, I guess it, they were called Monolith when they did Xenosaga. But anyways, a bunch of them came from Square uh, and worked on Xenogears, and then they left Square to create Monolith. So they did the Xenosaga series and Xenoblade series. Monolith Soft is hiring staff for a new Legend of Zelda project. Um, now, a lot of people brought this to my attention and were wondering, wait a minute, is Monolith making the next Zelda game? Is it their exclusive project? I don't think that's the case. Um, 
for those of you who don't know, Monolith actually was very involved in the, the development process for Breath of the Wild. I think that uh, Nintendo's internal Zelda team was struggling to bring Zelda into an open world, struggling with physics-based development and things like that. Um, they were struggling to get some things right. And they brought Monolith, certain staff members of Monolith over to help them because they had already worked a lot with uh, at least those key parts of the development process for large worlds and things like that. Um, especially with Xenoblade Chronicles X on the Wii U. So in any case, I would assume this is a similar deal that that partnership went really well on Breath of the Wild. And so they want them to help out on the next Zelda title, the next console Zelda title as well. Um, but what's interesting is that this recruitment, uh, which you can see here, is actually Monolith Soft's website. So Monolith Soft is the one recruiting for the Zelda game, which is... I, I think it could mean one of two things. I mean, one, they're going to be much more involved with the next Zelda game than maybe even they were on Breath of the Wild. Maybe it went so well that it's like, yeah, we really want you guys like as key members of the next Zelda team. Or... It could mean that Monolith wants to keep their key staff working on the, their next game, whether that's Xenoblade or whatever. And so they're, they're recruiting people to, to be able to send to the Zelda team to help them while they can keep their key personnel focused on, uh, on their next Xenoblade game or whatever it is that they're working on right now. So it could be one of two things, I guess. Uh, the article here says Monolith Soft, the studio behind the Xenoblade Chronicles games, is hiring developmental staff to work on the Legend of Zelda series. The company recently put out a recruiting page with a number of positions, including a project manager, technical artists, programmers, planners, and designers. Uh, Monolith Soft worked on the Zelda series before, famously assisting with the development of Breath of the Wild. Hopefully, this is uh, hopefully this news is anything to go by, or if this news is anything to go by. We may soon learn that the next learn of I have a hardest time reading. We may soon learn of the next Legend of Zelda adventure. Stay tuned for more info. So um, nothing really to go by, but uh, plenty of speculation that you can make there on how involved Monolith is going to be on the next Zelda title. Um, hopefully we'll hear more information soon, but uh, interesting stuff. Okay. Um, next topic, Hyper Light Drifter is being made into a television series. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a huge fan of Hyper Light Drifter. I've done a review of sorts for it on the channel. Um, it is a top five game for me of all time. Not even a top ten, it's a top five. I love it that much. Um, creator Alex Preston is teaming up with... Adi Shankar, Shankar. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. Hopefully I got it right. He's the guy who worked on the Castlevania Netflix series. So for any of you who were big fans of that Castlevania anime that they put on Netflix, that guy is teaming up with Alex Preston, the creator of Hyper Light Drifter, and they are working on a series. Um, let me read a little bit about it here. 
Known for challenge, let me put it on the screen, actually. Known for challenging combat, stunning pixel visuals, and a palpable post-apocalyptic fantasy atmosphere, the world of Alex Preston's action RPG Hyper Light Drifter earned major praise when it arrived in 2016. Now, the game's ready to return to screens, but this time as a television show. Alex Preston confirms to Polygon that he and producer Adi Shankar, whose game adaptions include Netflix's Castlevania and upcoming series based uh, and, uh, and an upcoming series, they didn't put that in there, based on Devil May Cry and Assassin's Creed, are actively in development on an animated series based on the title. Hyperlight Drifter, developed by Preston's indie studio Heart Machine, debuted in the spring-summer of 2016 for P PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. A Nintendo Switch version arrived in September. It's a good version, by the way. I like that version. Uh, in, con in conversation with Polygon, Preston said he and Shankar are actively reaching out to writers to lead the TV adaption and are still working on exactly how to translate Hyperlight Drifter's gameplay experience to a non-interactive medium. This, for me, is the biggest point of concern. Okay, I've talked about in the, in the past how there are certain mediums that are better suited for certain types of stories and that there are certain stories that only work as video games. Hyperlight Drifter would be one of those games that I would classify as being only suitable <laughs> for the video game platform. So, because there's no dialogue in it, right? You go around and you talk to people, and they just bring up little pictures that sort of like summarize, you know, like the story. But not really even summarize, just vaguely give you the the most generalized idea of what happened and you do most of the puzzle, you know, putting the puzzle pieces together on your own and sort of like interpreting what you see. So, I don't know. It, it seems like a strange choice. I, I And it, as of right now, they're only in the very early planning stages because they're trying to find out how they would do this. <laughs> and I think for the reasons that I just discussed, it, it is a challenge. So, while it is exciting, and I believe in both of the people who are at the head of this, I think that creatively they're both really, really uh, brilliant guys, I still just have that kind of lingering question as to, like, like how? How will you do that? <laughs> how will you make that work? Um, it says here, the difference between a series and a game is vast in a lot of ways. Hyperlight... This is, I think, Preston talking. Hyperlight as a game was pretty atmospheric and kind of overbearing at times. Never mind, this is not. This is Shankar talking. For a series, the question is, how do you sustain and keep your attention on a non-interactive run? Does it get really, really dark and serious? Does it have some levity? At this early stage, Preston says he and Shankar are leaning a lot more towards something that, re that is representative of the game on the style side though the visuals will most likely trend toward anime-esque animation rather than a straight interpretation of the game's pixel designs. The films of Hayao Miyazaki and his studio Ghibli, Animation Studio, were a major influence on Hyperlight Drifter, that is true, and should be, again, as Preston and Shankar conceptualize the story and storytelling of the series. Of all the guiding light Miyazaki's films provide, the director's formal purity seems especially essential in these nascent moments nascent moments i've never seen that word before we're gonna look that up right now what does this word mean 
We're learning a new word today, fellas. Uh, let's just pronounce nascent. Nascent, especially of a process of organization just coming into existence and beginning to display signs of future potential. I like that word. That's a word I'm going to adopt into my vocabulary. Anyways, um, that is a good point. Uh, one I hadn't really considered, and I mean, I knew it, but I didn't really think about it. That Mi Hayao Miyazaki films were a huge inspiration for Hyperlight Drifter. So if they go that direction with it, I, it probably could work. It's just going to be interesting to see a Hyperlight Drifter adaption or, or an, an interpretation of that world, a, a presentation of that world where people are talking. <laughs> um, the, the game story came a lot more through just like thinking and putting the pieces together and and interpretation so as long as it's still interpretive i think that it can work and hayao miyazaki films can definitely lean in that direction so cool stuff excited to see where they go with that again very very early so who knows if they'll go all the way through with it but i believe in the people who are trying to put something together seems like it'd be cool um I'm not going to talk much about this one, but apparently there's a Sega Genesis Mini coming in September. Uh, going to launch with 40 games. Give me just one second. I can hear people out in the hall talking. I'm going to close my door and minimize as much sound as possible. From the outside, it won't be distracting. It's just kind of a weird day to record for me. There's a lot of people that come in here on Sunday for whatever reason I don't know into an office building to do stuff. Um, I know you guys didn't hear anything. I, I take precautions for that purpose, but I just want to really make sure. Anyways, now I know that there are other like Sega Mini type machines that have been made. I think Kaysen even has one that like comes with a bunch of games on it. I don't know if any of those have been officially produced by Sega though. I think that these are like third parties that got like some kind of licensing to, to make that sort of thing. So I hadn't really heard about this, but apparently this is going to be a Sega produced thing. If you guys know more about this than me, feel free to um, correct me on it in the chat. This was just something someone shared on discord. And so I wanted to talk about it briefly. Legodoc says all of them were third-party licenses before. Uh, Paradise says I have one and it blows. The sound is awful. Yeah, the, the emulation has not been good on them, um, which is why, for the most part, they were pretty cheap machines. I mean, you could get, like, a bunch of games on it, and it was, like, 20 30 bucks, right? Versus, like, the 80 $60 to $80 you spend on one of the Nintendo Mini machines, and obviously, originally, the $100 for the PlayStation machine, but that wasn't good either until you modded it. That's neither here nor there. I've done that, and now it's cool. And I also bought it for $40, which made it a lot more uh, worth it. Anyways, last year, Sega showed off its own miniaturized retro console. Let me put this on the screen. I keep forgetting to do that. And get the chat back. Last year, Sega showed off its own miniaturized retro console to join Nintendo and Sony, but unfortunately it was delayed. Now the company announced during this year's Sega Fest that the Genesis Mini Mega Drive uh, will launch in the U.S. and Japan on September 19th. 
It appears this console will feature different localized versions of certain games. Among the 40 games it will have, the company confirmed, at least in Japan, classics like Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Shining Force, Gunstar Heroes, and Comics Zone, Space Harrier 2, Puyo Puyo 2, Red to Hero, Castlemania Bloodlines, and Powerball. I don't know how they haven't announced Fantasy Star 4 for that, but I would hope Fantasy Star 4 is on there. Uh, like the PlayStation Mini, this one is powered by micro USB and has an HDMI output ca capable of up to 720p resolution. The controller is a six-button version of the Genesis gamepad that most players preferred. It also supports saving anywhere within the game, which Sega said might make it easier for certain titles you never finished back in the 90s. So save states, essentially. Sega's M2 is making the software for the system, which is a change that caused the delay as Sega brought uh, development of its retro console in-house. So they are developing it in-house. Interesting. There's a reset button, but it doesn't work the same as it did on the original system. Also, like other retros, it doesn't seem like there's any support for downloads and obviously no cartridge slot like the analog SG. There's no pricing yet for the US, but in Japan it will cost 6,980 yen, about $60, with one controller, or 8,980 yen, about $80, with two. So, seems interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. We are all big retro gamers here at Resident Arc, and so we didn't grow up with Sega ourselves, Case and Landon and I. Um, we grew up with Nintendo stuff primarily, but uh, we were definitely into the PlayStation RPGs. So, you know, PlayStation, Nintendo stuff, and beyond we were really into. But growing up, we did not have Sega consoles, so we don't really have any nostalgia for those games. But I have played Fantasy Star 4, which I loved. I really want to play Shining Force. Like, really want to play Shining Force. Bad. So there are some really good RPGs on Sega machines, and so I will eventually be covering those, so this might be a nice thing to get, especially if you can mod it, right? So we'll keep an eye on that. Okay, um, last thing that I want to get into, this is going to be a longer topic before we get into the main topic. But now... I want to talk about episode Arden, which released this week. Um, this is the last piece of DLC that is ever going to be released for Final Fantasy XV. In other words, Final Fantasy XV is finally complete now. Well, I guess that doesn't, that's not technically true because there is one more thing they're releasing, but it's not going to be DLC. It's not going to be part of the game. It's going to be, I think, a novel. Um, something about the future. What is that freaking thing called? Let me get the actual title of it. Final Fantasy 15 novel. I hear people running around out there. Freaking don't run around. You're ruining my podcast. What is it called? Dawn of the Future. Thank you, Jonathan. So they will release this book called Dawn of the Future. Uh, at some point this year, later this year. So there is sort of one more thing. <laughs> Capcom says dawn of the production's freaking end. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, episode Arden. Um, 
I mean, I mean, surprise. I mean, is it, it is a is it a spoiler at this point for my channel to say that I liked some of the ideas and the execution was really bad? <laughs> I mean, that just sums up my entire thoughts on the whole game of Final Fantasy 15. There's so much potential there. And the world is really interesting, and I think there's just so much they could have done with it that they ultimately didn't do. The game is, despite being in a, a, a long, long development cycle, was super rushed. I feel like almost everything that has come out surrounding this story feels that way. It feels like it was rushed, like it wasn't completely thought all the way through, and that they had these brilliant ideas and then just didn't quite deliver on them. It's not to say that it's a horrible game. I think that it's fine, it's okay, it's serviceable, but it's just not... It feels worse because of all the potential it had. It's like it could have been one of the very best Final Fantasy stories ever. In my opinion, it had that potential. It had all the pieces in place. They just didn't connect those pieces in a way to which it fulfilled its potential. And again, surprise, that's how I felt about this DLC. Now, when they announced that they were going to be doing an Arden DLC, because remember they did like a poll and they said, we could do like all these different ones. And which one would you vote on of all of these different characters we could cover? And Arden, I want to say... I remember being the one that was the most popular. People wanted to see an Arden backstory more than any other. Chocolate Rob says, you were supposed to be the chosen one. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, Arden was the one I was most interested in. But again, I, I only say that because I had the assumption that they were going to make a game based on the time period he came from, the one that they made the little anime episode art and prologue, if you guys saw that, they made like a little anime, it was like a 10 or 12 minute video um, that they released on YouTube that told his story from the time he came from, from his time, when he was like the chosen savior going around like sucking the star scourge out of people and saving people's lives. That was what I wanted them to make the DLC story about. That's not what they did. Instead, they made the story about after Arden is, like, brought back out and how he turns evil, essentially. I mean, which is fine, I guess. It's just, like, that to me is not the most interesting part of his background, nor is the setting one that I think would have been the most interesting to sort of explore. And now a lot of people would make the argument, well, they'd have to develop so many original assets for a new time period, and that would be like too much work or whatever. And this was before the DLC release, people were saying this. So it makes more sense that they'll want to keep it more towards like the modern time period because, you know, they'll have a lot of assets already created that they can reuse and it'll cut down on development time. But they basically created insomnia as a explorable city which means they were creating tons of original assets i mean as much work as went into this episode in in the creation of original assets 
I, is just as high as it would have been if they had gone back into that time period and made that. <laughs> it's like literally the same amount of work. There's so much original stuff here that was not in the original game, not reused assets, that, um, I don't know, I just find it, in, I just, uh, they could have done that. It created as much original content to explore a more interesting time period, a more interesting part of the story, in my opinion. That being said, there were still um, parts of it that I thought were pretty good. Um, they answered slash retconned a lot of things in terms of uh, lore and some of the things we were fuzzy about, like um, the Ifrit and like Ifrit's allegiance more or less with Arden. Are they working together? Is he autonomous? Is he working for Arden? Uh, spoilers, if you haven't played it and you want to play it, this is probably the time to click away, but my overall thoughts on this are that, again, some interesting ideas feels rushed or poorly executed in a lot of ways. Um, but they... they so there's a couple of things in it that I, I don't want to come off as sounding like super negative or something like that because I don't have strong feelings about Final Fantasy XV really. To me, I'm just very milk toast on the whole thing. I will be playing it again for review now that everything's out. That it's finally complete. So, but but I, I don't like, I'm not a hater of Final Fantasy XV. There are many elements of it that I think are really quite good and that I really liked. So if it feels like I'm being like really hard on it or that I'm uh, hating on the game, I promise you I don't feel that way. It's just that I I just feel it could be a lot better, right? But when there's this there's a segment there where you're sort of exploring um I forget the name of the character or something like Vales Vales something. Prompto's dad who creates all the Magitech stuff is like the scientist inventor guy who's like doing all of the uh, experimentation in uh Niflheim. So he's the one who brings Arden there and they're experimenting, trying to like figure out more about how he has like the powers of a demon, but like is without the weaknesses, like being able to go out in the sun and stuff like that. Um, but essentially the, when you're inside of his little, like um, you're inside of like his base is uh, his laboratory and they have that huge painting. See if I can bring it up here on the screen. Uh, fifteen. So there was a ton of original artwork done for Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, this is the one. Um, how do I like get a full version of this? Is there like a larger size? I want a large size version of it. Anyways, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Put it on the screen here, but this one. They had like this Renaissance-esque sort of artwork that they created uh, for the game like back when it was, I mean, a long time ago. I mean, this this comes back from the Versus 13 days, right? When the story was going very much in a different direction from what it ended up going in. Here's another one. Anyways, uh, this painting here is uh, on the wall and you have um, 
forget his name, the scientist guy, sort of like interpreting this image. And um, it's just so freaking obvious to me that this is supposed to be Etro from the, the Fabula Nova Crystallis mythology, because that's originally what Versus 13 was supposed to be, is part of that. You know, here are the the Guardian Kings from Lucius's past. When he, when he puts on the, the ring, he sees them, right, in um, Kingsglaive. Um, Noctis and, and, the, and the boys here in the center. Uh, Bahamut and Leviathan and Rama and uh, Shiva there. Um, anyways, they sort of retconned this character <laughs> here into being the Oracle, the original Oracle, um, Era Flore, the, the ancestor of uh, Luna Freya. And I mean, I get it, like they're they're trying to sort of tie everything together and they're trying to solidify the directions they decided on later when it was no longer versus 13 it became final fantasy 15 and they changed the, the the mythology so that it's its own thing it's not tied to the fabula nova crystallis anymore but all this really did was serve to make me go like man i wish we had gotten the game where the kingdom of lucius was like the dark kingdom and that they worshipped the goddess of death but instead they turned all of these guys who dress in black and have insignias of skulls and all this stuff they turned them into like the light kingdom that protects the crystal of light and <laughs> and it's just so obvious visual from a visual standpoint of the design of that kingdom and its characters and to like what they actually are, that there's a huge disconnect there for me. And it's clear what they were originally supposed to be. And then what, that what they turned them into does not really go together visually from like a visual design standpoint. So anyways, I, th and if you've seen the Omen trailer for final fantasy 15, which was, the weirdest part was that that trailer for Final Fantasy XV, not a trailer for Versus Thirteen, but a trailer for Final Fantasy XV, Omen, seemed to be closer to what the original story of Versus Thirteen was going to be about. Which brings into question, is the, the main character really the villain, right? And I think there are still elements of that with the story of um, of Arden's past. Because Arden was this kind savior of mankind, you know? Um, someone who was very altruistic and was sacrificing, you know, in order for the greater good, for the kingdom, for the society, for the people. And his brother, Somnus, who usurps the throne from him, puts him in bondage for thousands of years, and sort of takes over is the ancient ancestor of of Noctis uh, and and the first king in that line. So that all leads into this potential for the story <laughs> to have the main character be part of this lineage of evil kings, <laughs> not necessarily good guys, and for the villain of the game Arden to actually be the 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 hero in a traditional sense, who's sort of like anyways. That would have been cooler, <laughs> in my opinion. That would have been cooler. And 
the the oracle of the of Noctis's time realizing this and fighting against Noctis for Arden's sake I just feel like there was potential for that story that's the story I would have been more interested in and images like this and the way they talk about them in the Arden DLC just feel like retcons that that are necessary because obviously they need to they, they didn't go that direction with the story so they need to but but it's like don't include art and stuff from the old thing in the new thing just disregard it pretend it doesn't exist this was a at a different time when the direction was going a different way discard it it's not part of it anymore and they're trying to like take those original images because people were super excited about them thought they were cool spent hours trying to like figure them out and they're like okay we're just going to explain them in a way that makes little sense uh, thank you for the subscription, X9071Strife. Appreciate it. Um, anyways, so that bothered me a little bit, and there were a couple of different places where they did things like that. But I liked, in general, the sections with... Ver, what is his name? Um, Verstalem or something like that? Uh, who is Prompto's dad? Verstale, Verstale, Bezithia, all these freaking Latin names, man. Verstale, okay, so that's his name. Anyways, the conversations with him, uh, his sort of like um, laboratory, they, they have this like um, world, that's this huge like display with the world of Eos and, or Eos, whatever it's called, Eos. And you can sort of go through and there's additional pieces of lore like the descent of the astrals and sort of like, you know, what happened in the past with the Solheim civilization. Um, all of that I thought was really interesting. Again, because I think the world, even that they decided on for this game, which differed from the original Versus 13, still has some really fascinating uh, ideas, some cool um, lore in place. So I liked all that. Um, takes about 45 minutes to get through that whole section and get into like the real meat of the game where it's essentially Arden infiltrating um, uh, Lucius, um, the capital city, I should say, uh, Insomnia, there it is, um, and sort of trying to just like wreck it. And he brings, um, he brings Ifrit with him and the game is essentially go to like five different waypoints and like destroy the energy producing things fight the guardians and then fight regis and then eventually fight somnus so it was the bulk of the game is that is like going to the five waypoints destroying the thing so that you can fight the final boss gameplay wise i have the same problems as i did with the original Noctis combat because I like Gladio's combat mechanics a lot but outside of him the Noctis combat I just found too easy like essentially all you do is hold circle to attack and hold square when you need to dodge you don't have to do it with any kind of particular timing you just hold the button so I didn't like that right and so this is more of that because he's using Arden is using the uh, I don't know what you call it, all the weapons that float around you in a circle, the royal arms, I think they call them. 
So, anyways, um, combat from a combat perspective, didn't love it any more than I loved playing with Noctis in Final Fantasy XV. Um, so, anyways, you fight Regis. They sort of explained the one thing that I was like, this makes no sense, right? Because in Kingsglaive, Arden comes to Insomnia and speaks with the king as the Chancellor of Niflheim. And it's it seems pretty clear that Regis does not recognize him as an enemy he's fought in the past because in all these trailers, they showed them facing off. It's like, how does he not know who he is in Kingsglaive? What the heck? But uh, they explain it away by Arden is like, He's essentially taken on a disguise or the form of one of the like the guards in the in the in the Lucian army. So technically Regis never saw his face. But he does know that he is the ancient like ancestor who was like locked away on that island. He knows that. And and because he's using royal arms and he recognizes that, but he doesn't see Arden's true face. So they kind of explained that away. But anyways, after you defeat Regis, uh, the ring that he wears summons Somnus, the founder king of the of the kingdom, and you fight him. And I didn't like love because it's it seemed like what they tried to do at the end was make it like a matter of perspective kind of thing. It's like if you see it from Somnus's perspective, he was just trying to do what's good for the people. But if you see it from Arden's perspective, it's really bad, and it's a huge, obviously, betrayal. But that, I didn't think they did a good job of balancing that. Somnus was a dick. They really made him look bad. And it was almost impossible to see it from his point of view. What he did was he usurped the throne totally unjustly didn't have much reason at all other than being envious and jealous and they, he does mention that you know i was envious i there was nothing that made me special and i was envious of you so envy obviously plays a part but i think they kind of tried to make somnus at the end be like i'm sorry like i hope your soul finds repose like i, I ask for your understanding not for your forgiveness i did it for the people kind of a thing it's like no you didn't and they make him look so malicious and evil um, in how he usurps the throne that there there wasn't any sense of... I didn't feel bad for him at all. It's like, Somnus sucks, he should die. So it felt good to, to fight him and, and beat him and stuff like that. But then they kind of... Bahamut comes in and uh, essentially that whole section there, I... I didn't... I didn't like it because they, and this has kind of been true of the story from the beginning, but the idea of fate in the world of Final Fantasy XV is that it's completely unchangeable and nobody really has any free will at all. Like, it does not matter what you choose to do. The thing will eventually work out the way that it has been preordained by the gods. The gods are in control of everything. And... Essentially, no one is a free agent in this world. And so they give you a choice at the end to submit to the will of the gods, because the will of the gods is that there's going to be this 10-year uh, process in which, like, darkness will fall over the world, and that, that, you know, that 
Noctis is eventually going to sacrifice himself and save everybody. They've like deemed that that's going to happen. They've preordained that. And I was going to bring this up, Rob. It's not like the Silmarillion because in the Silmarillion, everyone is a free agent. It's just a prediction of the future. There, no one is created for the purpose of uh, fulfilling a part of the, the music of Iluvatar. That he, uh, I, I actually responded to your comments on the Silmarillion book club video. I don't know if you saw them. But um, Melkor was not created by Iluvatar to do the things he did. Melkor came from a, a, a part of Iluvatar's mind like the rest of them, but made all of his own choices on his own. He, um, he went out into the void because he was impatient of it, wanted more beings to come into it, to, to fill it. He, res he, he responded to his rejection by Varda in the way that he did all on his own. He was an autonomous free agent who was not created to be who he became. But rather, when he tried to dominate, when he tried to control the music, Iluvatar redirected it, made changes, responded to it, and uh, moved it in a different direction. And he continually tried to dominate. Anyways, I don't think fate in the Silmarillion and fate in Final Fantasy XV can be likened to each other. I don't think that they operate the same way. Because people in Middle-earth and in the Silmarillion lore have agency to choose. It's just that the wise have, the wise know how they will respond and make prophecy. Um, whereas in, in Final Fantasy XV, they just straight up tell you, it does not matter if you make this choice because it's going to work out this way anyway. You have no choice. This will be the end for you either way. And they're kind of dicks about it. Like Bahamut is... Eh. I don't know. I just don't like the concept of fate because it's like, what's the point? What's the point of even following the story if you know the end? What's the point of anything? <laughs> um, not if you know the end, but if, if there's no possible way the characters could change the fate. Now, from what I've seen people talking about, uh, with this book, the the dawn of whatever you guys set it up here. Gosh dang, I have to scroll up. I keep forgetting it. Dawn of the future or something like that. The novel that's coming out. Anyways, there's some hope there that Noctis, there where I think because they were originally gonna make a Noctis DLC, right? And in that Noctis DLC, there was supposed to be a new ending for the game. And I think. The speculation for that was that Noctis was going to defeat the gods and change fate. Not defeat them, maybe in the sense that you fight them, but at least defy them and change the fate of the world. Actually, like, overcome this fate and this tyranny of the gods in the ordering of how things happen in this world. And so that DLC got canceled, but some people speculate the book is going to go into that. If that's the case... I'd actually be kind of, um, it would be, it would be kind of cool if that's what they decided to do with that. I'd actually be interested in that section of the story. If they're going to change the fate, the whole fate concept of Final Fantasy XV, if that's 
if that's what that book's going to be, I'm actually kind of excited for it. So, um, I think that about covers it. The, the only other thing I, I had criticism of the way that, again, this is just my, my, my criticism of Square Enix in general right now, actually, ever since they started doing voice acting, they just don't have good voice direction. Now, the guy who voices Arden is an incredibly good voice actor. Uh, James Arnold Taylor, who voices uh, Titus in Final Fantasy X, is also an incredibly talented voice actor. But I don't like the voice direction for the character in Final Fantasy X. I don't like Snow's direction in Final Fantasy XIII. Obviously, that guy's been in a million freaking projects, and he's incredibly gifted as a voice actor. So they have great talent. It's just... There's a couple of scenes with, like, Aira and Arden together. They have, like, their romantic moments. A lot of people were joking that they get more screen time <laughs> and more development as a couple than Luna and Noctis do in the game. Um, but those moments felt really forced. <laughs> you know, in anime all the time, they have, like, the, 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 the real fake laughing, the... <laughs> <laughs> we're so happy <laughs> it's it's that kind of cheesy feel to like all the scenes with era and and arden um a part of it's a writing thing like writing in this forced laughter like you don't have to have a couple going <laughs> to indicate that they're in love <laughs> like you can have them act normal and without all this like forced like kind of stuff in order to make them feel like a genuine relationship. So I didn't really feel for Arden's loss as much as I should have because all the moments that had them together just felt lame and cheesy to me. But I feel like the voice actor for Arden, I wish I had his name. Let me look it up. I should do that. Arden voice actor. Uh, Darren DePaul. I think he's really good. I mean, he was he was my favorite voice actor even from the original game. I think that he does the best job of anybody. And uh, he does a great job here as well. He's very expressive, um, has a very distinct voice. He's just really good. Like, I think he's brilliant. And he, his depiction, his emotions really come through in the character. And you see the pain... I just didn't quite feel it, but I think it was more of a directing and writing issue than it was a performance issue. Um, so, you know, it, it is what it is. Anyways, those are my feelings on episode Arden. Pretty much feel about the same way about it as I do about everything else. So, with that game, with with Final Fantasy XV. Um, everything feels forced is overall the direction of how Final Fantasy is being handled by Squeenix says Paradise. Lego Dog says, I've been watching a lot of voice actor interviews and the only uh, one that I can see is that, the only thing I can see maybe, is that Square Enix must have been adamant that they, v, that the VAing is the way it ended up being. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Because uh, a lot of VAs have the same process regardless of project. Um, maybe clarify that a little bit. I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, Paradise says Arden's voice was good. Capdoc says the problem with the voice work is that it's still all ADR dubbed, even though Square Enix goes and reanimates the lip 
flaps to match the English voices in major projects like FSFs. You know, that's something we've talked about a lot in the past is that the voice actors are, they're not physical in a lot of RPGs just because of the, the great volume of work they have to do. Um, so they just kind of stand in a booth and give their performance. Now, I still think there are ways to overcome that from a directing standpoint and to make it sound as natural as possible. But that is one limitation that uh, RPGs are always going to face, that studios that make shorter, more cinematically driven games like um, uh, Naughty Dog, they can kind of overcome that by having their actors do the, the, the performance animation as well. So they're in the suits and they actually animate and act out the scene physically. And that helps a lot. When you're with the other actor face-to-face, you're actually moving your body it really helps it feel a lot more natural. So that's always going to be a problem or at least a limitation for long RPGs with thousands of lines of dialogue, but there's still ways I think that they could be doing it a lot better. Okay, let's move move into today's main topic, which is are melodic soundtracks always better than ambient ones? Uh... The reason I I wanted to bring this up, we have a list of um, like 100 topics or something that we choose from each week uh, when we're thinking about, okay, what should the next podcast topic be about? This was one of them, but the reason it's kind of jumped off the page to me is because this last week I made um, or I released a review for Terranigma. And this was a, a positive comment. I appreciated the comment. I won't say who the who the channel is, the... The user who wrote this, um, you know, he was he was praising Terranigma, talking about how great it was, thanking me for making, um, you know, the review and stuff like that. So it's not like a, a point of contention. It's just that he he wrote this uh, at the at the end of his comment on music. I am a firm believer in in the at the, or that the advent of common voice acting was the death of the video game soundtrack. Once people could yada 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 in video games, music became merely a punctuation to atmosphere rather than the commander of atmosphere. Instead of moving your soul, the music was simply there to accompany the ambience, a serious step back. So this is something, this is a sentiment I've seen shared a lot in communities that discuss JRPGs specifically. Because JRPGs, in terms of... Music is one of the defining features of a JRPG. Really beautiful, moving music. Great use of leitmotif to supplement characters and locations. Um, You know, they were doing stuff with with music, the JRPG composers, that were more akin to film techniques. Um, in terms of helping to tell the story with these these really memorable, beautiful melodies. Uh, they were doing that before a lot of other genres of games were doing it. And again, not all. This is a generalized statement. In any case, I have found a lot of people who share that opinion that music that is set up to be, as he puts it, a punctuation to atmosphere rather than the commander of the atmosphere is, uh, I guess, innately a bad thing or is, is, is worse. 
than uh, melodic music, right? I disagree with this, and I and you know. It would have been nice to have Kaysen on, but I'll kind of rely on you guys in the comments. I'll try to check it a little bit more to, to get any counterpoints to what I'm going to say. But I disagree with the premise of the statement. I disagree with the, with the idea that if a, if a piece of music does not have a strong melody, it cannot be a commander of atmosphere. That ambient music is only a punctuation to atmosphere <clears throat> that it cannot be the commander of it. Um, let me actually read a couple of things from Patreon. There were a couple of people who had some, um, some interesting questions along the same lines that I kind of want to respond to first. <clears throat> first, Lego Doc here in the chat says, I'm inclined to disagree. There's good to both sides. That's kind of where I stand. You can have really, really effective music that is more ambient, less melodic in nature, that can command atmosphere. As a prime example, the soundtrack of Blade Runner was groundbreaking, hauntingly beautiful, and, I mean, the primary setter of tone for that film. But I, I guarantee you, almost nobody listening to this right now will be able to hum to me the tune that plays during the tears in the rain scene at the end of the movie. You won't be able to go, oh yeah, da 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 da, and, and hum a melody. It won't come to you. But that music and that scene is so freaking powerful. And just comes together to create one of the greatest moments in cinema history there. And the music of Blade Runner is phenomenal. I would say the same about the soundtrack of Blade Runner 2049. I don't think it's as good as the original soundtrack, but it's, it's similar in that it definitely commands the atmosphere, creates a feeling. I feel all kinds of emotions when I listen to that music, but it's not strongly melodic. And so I just, I just disagree with the premise of that statement. Uh, let's see what a couple of people are saying here. Uh, FF10's music especially commands so many emotions to me, says Real Dracula. Capcock uh, says FF10 is an interesting mixture of melodic and ambient. Uematsu and Hamauzu tackled the traditional cues, and Nakano did the more minimalistic ambient pieces. Um, Hamauzu's music actually quite often can feel very ambient in nature too. He did the soundtrack for 13 and a lot well, a lot of what people don't like about Final Fantasy 13 soundtrack is that it has a lot of these just sort of wide soundscapes that don't have a, a melody per se in them. But I think they're really effective. I, I love Hamauzu's stuff. Uh, Vertigris says, would you classify the Hyperlight Drifter similar to Blade Runner? I, I was actually gonna bring that up. Everyone's on the same page. Hyperlight Drifter, I'm not going to play some of that in a minute, but Hyperlight Drifter is very inspired by Blade Runner, I would say. Has very few strong melodies, but is one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard in a video, in a video game, ever. I listen to it regularly. And I'll get into why here in a minute. Colin Palusa says, I can, I can because I listen to it five million times. Well, there you go. Colin Palusa, <laughs> but, but again, not a soundtrack that is strongly melodic but you've listened to it five million times why 
obviously this music can move people emotionally. It can be a commander of atmosphere. Um, Dream, Dream Bomb says, using humming memorability as a litmus test for the quality of music is fundamentally flawed to begin with. Thank you. Absolutely on the money. The premise, that premise is fallacious to me. Uh, Paradise says, I think it is important for the song to emulate the feeling that you should be feeling during that part of the game. I don't think just because it isn't super memorable that automatically makes it bad. Now we're going to get into that in a minute too. I'm going to, I'm going to turn away from the chat, but you're all on the right path. You're all here with me. Um, let's read Chris Guin's uh, comment on Patreon here. I'll put it on the screen. Very interesting topic. Uh, here are some possible thoughts, questions for you, which you may have already planned to discuss. People seem to disagree about how to define melodic music. Some just see, uh, some just seem to, or some seem to just mean I like it, while others mean it has a melodic line of some kind, while others, like me, mean hook-driven, hummable, memorable after only a few listens. How do you define melodic? I would agree with you, Chris. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you in that the way I think of melody is something that's hook-driven and hummable and memorable after only a few listens. I think that some people who might define it as has a melody line of some kind may try to classify that Tears in the Rain uh, music from Blade Runner as having a melody, but I don't think it is. I think there are notes that kind of go in a... It has a melody line of sorts, but I don't ca classify that as melodic because it's not hook-driven at all. Uh, how, how intertwined is appreciation of music with its original context for you? And this is where I was wanting to go to next. Have you ever hated a piece of music out of its context only to fall in love with it when you finally experienced it in its proper place? Or vice versa, have you ever hated music in its context but learned to love it afterward? For example, Minds of Narsh is a song I don't really care for in the game, but now I love just listening to it. I can't say that I've had that experience where I hated a game or a piece of music in context but then loved it out of, or the reverse of that, loved it out of, hated it in context. But I do think when you're discussing a soundtrack that it is... I mean, it's not impossible. Obviously, people do this, right? So I can't use the word impossible, but I don't believe you should divorce the music from its context in order to properly analyze it. I think that that should be a consideration. Like, you're listening to a soundtrack and you've never played the game it comes from, and you have no idea under the circumstances which this music comes into play or where it's meant to supplement the storytelling means that you're missing the purpose of the music in the first place. Um, and that's not to say that you can't enjoy music that's meant for, or that is a soundtrack outside of its context, but to, to like dismiss it because outside of the context, you don't like just listening to it. I, I have a hard time, uh, I guess I have a hard time with that because you're you're dismissing the purpose of it. Like it wasn't designed for you to just pop the CD in and listen to it necessarily. Sometimes, I mean, obviously, um, 
very melodically driven soundtracks. If you've never seen the movie or whatever it comes from, you can listen to that and go, ooh, I like that. And, and here's the reason why I think that is. From a, more of a psychological, scientific standpoint, humans are very much driven by pattern recognition. I've talked about this a lot. If you guys have not seen the video that I made on this topic, the, the video title is uh, How Music Moves Us. Um, and for me, just this is just a personal anecdote, but for me, it's my favorite video that I've ever made on the internet. Um, I, think, I think it's the best video I've ever made. I, I really, really got into the research on that one and the, you know, the psychology behind our relationship with music and how our relationship with music is a lot older, perhaps, even than our relationship with language and is better innately at communicating emotion than, than language at its most sort of like base level is. And uh, it talks about how essentially the patterns of music, especially rhythm, are what really like... We, humans really like patterns. They like to sync with patterns. They recognize patterns and everything. So a song or a piece of music with a really strong melody has that really defined pattern. That's where we, where we talk about humming with it, right? You hear it a couple of times and you go, oh, I can sync with that. I can get with that. And there's a satisfaction that is like biological, so to speak, that we have when we can sync with a pattern like that. And so music that has strong melody is very satisfying that way. Whereas music that is ambient, it, you can't necessarily tell where it's going next. And it, it, it's a little harder to feel like you're in sync with it. That's not to say that you can't, because there's still a lot of rhythm that drives ambient music. And uh, for me, well, here's how I enjoy listening to ambient music outside of the context of the game. Um, I do a lot of writing, uh, creative writing, in the, the small amount of free time that I have. Um, I'm working on a novel that I've been writing for many, many years, 16 years, going on 17 years. Um, and I can't really like get into the, the feel um, when I'm listening to music with strong melody in it. So if I put on Final Fantasy music or something like that, I get distracted a little bit from what I'm writing by the melody, which is, which is the pattern that's going in my head and where my attention is leaning towards. But when I listen to stuff that isn't as strongly melodic, when I listen to stuff like Hyper Light Drifter, when I listen to music from uh, Vagrant Story and stuff like that, I'm able to feel the emotions from the piece, which sparks the emotion that leads to the inspiration so that I can write. Um, and I would, I would actually, I used to do a lot of driving. I had, um, I had a draw, I had a, a job where I drove a shuttle for a hospital and, you know, I would listen to talk radio. I would listen to music to pass the time. And I actually found myself more often listening to ambient soundtrack music because it would give me ideas. I would feel inspired 
by them. I would see scenes in my head and I would, I would feel the emotions of the characters and, and how, what's the dialogue that they say to each other. My, my, I, my mind was exploring all these creative possibilities for storytelling that was sort of being driven emotionally by the music. In other words, this ambient music was creating in me, commanding in me, an atmosphere or an emotion. So is it, not only is it possible for it to do that, I think that in many cases, it's, it's obvious that that's what it does. Um, let me get back to Chris's comment here. Have you ever felt that a song's melody was too intrusive or attention-grabbing or distracting, even though you really liked the melody and would enjoy listening to it and know the context? Yes, that has happened before. Um, I can't think of like any ex exact examples right now, but there are times where I'm playing a game and I stop playing the game. I put the controller down. I just go, da -da 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 -da, and I'm just like, oh, this music is so great. Da -da 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 -da. I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on the music than I am on the game that I'm playing or the story that's happening. That's definitely happened to me before. So I do think it is possible for strong melody to be a distraction from the story in some ways. I, I want to say that I felt that way a couple times in Xenogears as well. Do you ever get offended when a composer labels a piece as a character's theme when you can't remember it five seconds after you've heard it? Like Hope's theme. Remember that one? No, I didn't think so. That doesn't really ever bother me too much. Because, um, again, I'm, I, I don't want the, the melody to distract from what I'm supposed to feel in the story. Again, you can write strong melodies that don't distract, and that, that really support. I, li I like strong melodic music, too. I'm just saying that ambient music equally has its place and can be just as great at doing that. Uh, let's read one here from Daniel Imperial. Mainline Final Fantasy games have traditionally had heavily melodic soundtracks, while games like the Elder Scrolls series have much more atmospheric soundtracks. And then there's stuff like Mass Effect and Metroid Prime, which fall somewhere in between atmospheric and melodic. I'd like to know what, in your opinion, calls for an atmospheric soundtrack over a more melodic soundtrack, or vice versa. I'm glad you brought up the Elder Scrolls, because that's one of the games that I feel has, I mean, overwhelmingly praised music. Jeremy Soule is beloved as a composer, and people love his soundtracks. His soundtracks are highly atmospheric. Uh, two of them that I listen to often when I write are Piece of Akatosh. Beautiful, beautiful music. Far Horizons. Actually, no, Journey's End, because this one has a little bit more of a melody in it, Far Horizons does, but Journey's End. It creates a feeling of peace, a feeling of sort of that rustic homey and it's beautiful I love listening to it on its own try solitude
Mankind's Peace. I love the low choir in this one, the, the men's choir. I think it's great. Now, it should also be said that like the 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 trophy piece <laughs> from Skyrim is essentially the Elder Scrolls theme. Very hook melodic driven piece. So he, obviously he's doing both, right? But that's what I'm trying to say is that both have a place <laughs> in this. And um when I listen to that music, it, it inspires a feeling, an atmosphere that, that I, can, I can feel real emotions in and, and that I can use for inspiration in my writing. Um, and everyone that I was hanging out with at the time Skyrim was popular, they were all playing it, and all of them love that soundtrack. Now, here's, here's getting back to the original question, which was, I'd like to know in your opinion what calls for an atmospheric soundtrack over a more melodic soundtrack. Notice that Skyrim is not the most story-driven and certainly not a character-driven game. Skyrim is an exploration game. It is about going out into the world, finding what's out there, and, and just the, the beauty of discovery. And to me, that is a perfect setting for a more atmospheric or ambient soundtrack, is one in which... You're going out and exploring and discovering and, and finding, you know, what's out there. Sort of like the spirit of discovery, the spirit of the world around you. The ambience is kind of like what the game's really about in terms of the landscape and the places and the lore. Whereas a, a more character-focused story, I think is really aided by the use of melody and leitmotif so that when you have that character in a moment of reflection you can take that melody and make it into something solemn and soft and then when that when that character is in danger you can take that melody and put it into something bombastic and large and and frightening when that character is angry you can take that same melody and you can rework it into different ways to give a different emotion that the character is feeling. I think leitmotif is, I mean, obviously one of the strongest storytelling tools that a composer has in their toolkit and that they go really well with characters. Whereas if the story's more focused on, like I said, things like discovery and exploration, I mean, you could have melodies for areas too. You could do that. Uh, Final Fantasy does that a lot. You know, they have area themes that ha are ha very hook driven. But again, there's more than one way to do it and more, way, more than one way to do it very successfully. And I think Skyrim does the ambient side of it really well. Let me get back to the comments here. People are saying a lot of stuff. Um, uh, that's a nice layout. That's FUBAR 2000, right? Um, it's Winamp. It might be. <laughs> I've been using this forever. So Winamp is essentially the player that I've been using since like uh, 2000 or whatever, <clears throat> whenever it came out. Um, I really like uh, Winamp a lot. Fubar sounds um, familiar to me, though. 
I don't remember where, but from early 2000s internet. I remember that word. <laughs> um, Benedict says, I love melodic soundtracks, but I think Xenoblade, where wandering around massive areas means you hear it looped over and over again. Looping is a an interesting thing to bring up for video games specifically. You can get a really strong melody, but if it has to loop, 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 sometimes that can get fatiguing too, right? Whereas uh, something that isn't so hooky <laughs> in terms of like, oh yeah, you're like you're in the rhythm of it. Something that sits a little bit more in the background uh, won't won't do the same thing. So that that's actually a really good thing to bring up. Um, don't write and drive, says Rob. That's correct. Uh, ambience tends to be mishandled, says Capdoc in film, and some game scores these days. They're less of an atmosphere setter and more like variations on the same broody and serious tone. That's actually a good thing to bring up. I think that this is why most people don't like Hans Zimmer, because Hans Zimmer essentially created a structure <laughs> that is now a, a really simplistic structure that I think at the heart of it was not a bad thing. Um, but it has become essentially the repeated formula of Hollywood film scores. And to a large extent, they are very forgettable because of that. And uh, Inception was a big part of that. The dun, 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 right? Now it's like every trailer. Like just these big low beats. One or two note uh, oscillations. Over and over and over again, very repetitious. Now, when you when you're when that is being done without understanding the reason why Hans Zimmer did that in the first place in Inception, I agree. That can be really fatiguing and just it's being done for no purpose other than that seems to be what's popular now like movie trailers today are all the same total formula uh, involved there in terms of how they use beats and music and how they cut things and it, it's lost all its meaning but the reason Hans Zimmer did that in the Inception soundtrack was in service to the storytelling like you have that, um, I forget the name of the classical music that is being played. Um, to, when they want to wake somebody up, they put the headphones over the character and they play that classical music. Da, 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 da. I forget the name of it. But the entire idea is he took that melody and that music and he just slowed it way down and pitched it way down. Because the entire idea of Inception is that at the, you know, in every layer of the dream you go into, time slows down. Right, like things seem to happen a lot faster in your dreams, and then you wake up and it's like, oh, all this stuff happened, but it's like time moves slower, <laughs> so to speak. So you can get more things done in a dream than in reality. Right? It's kind of an abstract concept that we've, we're all probably familiar with, and so the music was taken and just slowed down and pitched way down to sort of like be a supplement to that entire concept. It's a brilliant idea, and the Inception soundtrack is amazing. I love it. I listen to it all the time. Feel tons of emotions when I'm listening to that. Same with um, Interstellar, right? And I think a lot of people forget that Hans Zimmer... Hans Zimmer did The Lion King. Hans Zimmer did Prince of Egypt. Hans Zimmer 
did uh, The Last Samurai and Gladiator. Like, he, he could do great melodies, obviously. But, you know, he has a philosophy behind what he does, and there's always a reason for it, a storytelling reason for it. <clears throat> I think people just lament the fact that there's been so many copycats of Zimmer's style for almost no purpose other than Zimmer's popular, so we're going to copy his style. But Zimmer doesn't do that. Zimmer always writes with a purpose. He, he's a great storyteller, and he knows what he's doing. And so I like Zimmer's soundtracks, because I know that he's doing that for a reason. Um, let me try and catch up here. Uh, Mugen Head Ninja says, that's a nice... Oh, that's Fubar. I already read that one. Mm, doo -doo -doo -doo. I'm not going to be able to read everything. There's a lot of people talking. I'll do my best to... to, to if you, if you want to ask something, uh, ask it again, because I'm, I'm too far behind already. Simon JHM uh, says, "Do you think there are? Do you think there was more personality in '90s game music compared to today?" No, I don't. Um, well, again, I think you can only really make comparisons between the greatest soundtracks of the '90s and the greatest soundtracks today, because obviously we're more familiar right now in this year, current year, whatever it is. With all the bad games that came out this year that had bad, bad soundtracks, and we're not as familiar with all the bad games that came out in 1994 and all the bad, bad soundtracks that came out in 1994. We only really remember the good ones, right? So, I mean, Breath of Fire's soundtrack existed in the 90s. It's not good. Uh, Legend of Gaia uh, soundtrack is not really very good. Soul Blazer soundtrack is not really very good at all. <laughs> These soundtracks were bad and existed in the 90s, right? But we seem to remember the really good ones. So we, at, in the act of only remembering the really good ones and comparing them to everything that comes out current year, you can go, man, it was better back then. Way better. I don't think that's true. And I don't think that uh, they had more personality than they do today. Because there are still very melodically driven soundtracks that come out today as well. But... On that point, though, Simon, let me go ahead and bring up. Um, do, 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 do. That was no one I want to do. Let me go ahead and bring up a Hyper Light Drifter soundtrack, which gives me Blade Runner vibes. But this game has tons of personality, tons of personality, and really strong emotion. Brilliant. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And and I, I feel tons of stuff when I listen to that. And I see I see the, the game scene playing out in my mind. Like I remember when that happened. And that's there's no melody there really. Right? Absolutely brilliant stuff there from Disaster Piece. Um 
Mugenhead says, thoughts on Nier and Nier Automata's uh, OSTs and their unique style. I love Nier's music. I have in the past talked down a little bit on Nier, especially Nier Automata. Uh, Automata. But um, the, it, uh, the music is outstanding. I mean, some of the best I've ever heard, <laughs> for sure. It's, it's really, really, really good. Um, but anyways, Hyper Light Drifter has tons of personality. It has... It has a, a very unique feel and atmosphere to that game. And the music is a huge part of it, but obviously very inspired by Blade Runner as well. <clears throat> and Blade Runner is one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. So anyways, um, let me get back to uh, the last one from Patreon here. This comes from E, put on the screen. When I think of melody versus atmosphere, I Am Setsuna comes to mind. I finished the game a couple of weeks ago, and I enjoyed the piano-only soundtrack. It fits well with the SNES-styled aesthetic of the game, along with the winter setting. Unfortunately, I cannot remember a single melody from I Am Setsuna. Contrast that with Final Fantasy VII, and I can hum the entirety of synth theme right now, even though I haven't played FF7 in over a year. Again, I think there was somebody who brought this up in the chat, but using hummability or memorability as a litmus test for something being good, I think is fallacious. I don't think that you have to be able to remember it in order to say that that music still had huge emotional impact within its context. And that that is literally the purpose of the music. The music's being written for the context in which it's going to appear. It's part of the storytelling process, and it should be viewed that way. The music is meant to work with the with the cinematography the writing the performance everything else the art design gameplay everything comes together to tell a story and so yeah as the original commenter said uh, you know maybe you could call that being in punctuation instead of uh, setting a mood but i would argue that that wasn't the case even with strong melodic soundtracks it is working together with everything it nothing's like a punctuation to something else you could say that the game's more focused here than there but i think that they are all equally important pieces of the puzzle that come together to create the emotion rather than it being oh it's mostly due to music or it's mostly due to the writing or it's mostly due to this i think ideally they should all be coming together in service to each other each of them lending to the the harmony that creates the feeling and so i i mean hyper light drifters music because hyper light drifter is designed like a super nintendo game whereas the original commenter would have said uh, the music was the primary cr uh, driver of emotion um and 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 Hyper Light Drifter is designed in the same way. The music serves the same purpose, but it is not driven by melody at all. It is very atmospheric, and it still works. And it's still super memorable. I still listen to that all the time. Um, here's a couple of other pieces that uh, I came up with. There's actually someone who posted this in Discord and said it was the most brilliant video game music they'd ever heard. This comes from Vagrant Story.
it's it's gorgeous it's gorgeous and there might be some people who want to sit and, and argue that that kind of like four note thing going on da, na, 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 is a melody but i don't really classify it that way i don't think it's a strong hook and it's sort of overtaken by more of the the the, the wide soundscape that comes up and that moment is beautiful in the story the meme, the moment where that that music plays and i i can listen to that outside of the game and i can feel those emotions and i can really get into it I, i'm kind of repeating myself at this point but i'm just trying to show different examples i might get in trouble <laughs> they might try to give me a strike on the video if i play this so i'll try to play it briefly but i get a lot of vibes from the last samurai the same way the last samurai has some strong melodies and good leitmotif in it this is before hans zimmer started to be uh hated by a lot of people for changing the way hollywood music is written this is just just before that happened with like the batman movies and stuff but this soundtrack's amazing and it's these moments most of all that i love the best about it these moments where you just feel the peace of the lifestyle that is going to be lost by the the coming industrialization and uh, westernization of Japan and the, what they're going to lose, essentially, right? Just beautiful. Oh, it's so good. I love it. But in any case, let's see what people are saying here. Um, so that's that one. I think I went through all the examples I wanted to use, yeah. So anyways, those are my feelings and my thoughts on uh, melodic versus ambient music and uh, the value that both of them have. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's misguided. I think that it's um, short-sighted to dismiss the value of ambient music in a soundtrack and, and to just totally like disregard it because it doesn't have strong hooks and strong melodies in it. And to say that it can't be a commander of atmosphere or that it can't be um, the primary source of emotion from a scene just because it doesn't have that strong melody in it. Capdoc says there's a happy marriage between traditional and ambient scoring among more pastoral pieces such as Breath of Fire 4's landscape revolving around ethnic Eastern instrumentation. I think that's a good point. Uh, Fixion says Metroid has good ambience. Metroid soundtracks are a great example as well. Metroid soundtracks are great. People generally really love Metroid soundtracks. And um, that, that's a, another good example of a game from kind of that time period, Super Nintendo, so with Super Metroid, right? Where the music drove and commanded the atmosphere for sure and was not melodic. Um... We have uh, something from uh, Lego Dog here. He has a YouTube link. Let's see what it, what it, how it goes. Uh, Xenoblade. Great piece. I love this piece. Now this has melody. Strong melody here. really good big fan of xenoblade uh xenoblade's music for sure 
Um, Final Fantasy XII has some of the... This is from Paradise. Final Fantasy XII has one of my favorite OSTs, and it's considered a memorable OST. But I like how they piece the music with the story. See, but I've heard a lot of people complaining about twelve having more atmospheric music, right? I love twelve soundtrack as well. I think it's great. But I think a lot of Final Fantasy fans who were used to Uematsu's style of writing, which is laced with powerful leitmotif and melody, they're the ones who were kind of like, I don't, I don't like this ambient stuff so much. I want my Uematsu melody. But I love Final Fantasy XII soundtrack. I think it's really, really phenomenal. And Sakimoto, who is the composer of Final Fantasy Tactics, Vagrant Story, and Final Fantasy XII, I think I like his style in some ways better than Uematsu. I'm not saying he's a better composer than Uematsu, but I think that he writes more complex music in a lot of ways than Uematsu does. Um, there's a lot of music that Sakimoto writes that is as... Um, complex in terms of movement and in terms of incorporating all the parts of an orchestra in really um, complex ways as like John Williams uh, Hollywood style of writing. Um, Sakimoto writes some stuff that really like parallels that and I think that he uh, is is brilliant in that way. Um, again, that doesn't take anything away from Uematsu's uh, simplicity in a lot of ways not to say that he hasn't written some really like complex stuff too again just in general um uematsu focus a lot on the bass hooks and and uh the melodies and makes those shine and that's obviously uh been something that for him has been like it's created his legacy and people prefer him over most composers <laughs> so um, obviously Dancing Mad would be the example I was thinking of there uh, as Mugen Head Ninja brings up so anyways I'm going to bring this to the end of the discussion I'll just read a couple more um, things from here Colin Peluso says Mike have you heard You Were There from Eco it has a melody in the lyrics but it's one of my faves um, I've probably heard it uh, I just don't remember. Let's just get a taste of it real quick. You were there. I don't want to play it too long because they might, again, anything with lyrics, you might get a strike on YouTube. Yes, this one. Great, great piece. I like that song a lot um super good super 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 good i've heard that before because i think that one plays on the top menu of the ps3 um remaster of eco and shadow of the colossus so when you're selecting between games that's the song that plays on the top menu of eco before you like click in so good stuff i like that piece a lot for sure um okay i'm gonna move on now thanks for everyone's comments sorry if i if i didn't uh read everything if you have something else you really want to ask me go ahead and ask again and i'll try and keep a closer eye on it but i want to move over now to the community stories for this week <clears throat> let's take a look at this first one comes from Reconius. go ahead and put this on the screen so you guys can see what he's talking about here uh Reconius says friends if you'd like to test the next build of my RPG, send me a message. 
qualifications, experience in the RPG genre, be honest about broken mechanics or graphical bugs and glitches, keep feedback concise and in a professional manner. Note all audio and visual assets are placeholder for this early build of the game. It's a simple game I'm making using RPG Maker while simultaneously dabbling in JavaScript. Thanks. Called Ashes of a Burning Stone. Test the pre-alpha. So he has the same qualifications there. Now, uh, to contact him, um, he, he will probably want you to either here on Discord. Again, we always have a link for Discord in the description. If you want to join our Discord server, link is in the description. But you could also find him on Twitter. Let me see if I can find his Twitter handle exactly so you guys can know where to find him. Uh, it's I think it's just Raconius, but I just want to make sure that's right. You can also find him on Twitter at Raconius. Okay, so the Twitter handle is at rant on... Okay, I'll just put it on the screen. <laughs> right here rant onio art rant onio art at rant onio art raconius this is where you can find him on twitter he also has a youtube page but probably harder to get his attention there send him a message on either discord or on uh twitter if you are interested in helping to play test his game ashes of a burning stone so thank you for raconius for that Next one came from rlennon72. For those who don't know, there is a charity event involving Final Fantasy VII called the Materia Lockdown Challenge. Think of it like Five Job Fiesta, but with Materia. It's to help raise funds to raise awareness for motor neuron disease. If you're buying this great game on your Switch, you got to check it out. MateriaLockdown.com. Final Fantasy VII came out on the Switch this week, I think. So uh, if you want to get involved in a charity event, here is the um, the the Twitter page for Materia Lockdown, FF7MLD is the handle. And here's the website where it sort of describes what it is. What is Materia Lockdown Challenge? The Final Fantasy VII Materia Lockdown Challenge is simple. Players sign up via Twitter. Whenever a new character joins the party while playing through Final Fantasy VII, they will tweet that character's name, hashtag Tifa, and will be assigned certain classes of materia, green, blue, yellow, red, or purple. From that point forward, the character is only allowed to equip that type of materia. Uh, types of materia. As magic support, obviously if you played Final Fantasy, you know. Anyways, it's an interesting challenge being done for charity. So if you are interested in this, and if you're playing through Final Fantasy VII, especially since it just launched on the Switch, uh, go ahead and check this out. Sounds like a really... Um, clever uh unique idea and um it's good stuff and it's for charity so look into that last one comes from greg Troyan of the band lipstick i showed off one of his songs uh, a couple weeks ago um let's go ahead and read what he has to say here hello friends greg Troyan from lipstick here i didn't want to dominate the community story section by submitting too many things in a row but since i'm constantly doing stuff i might as well tell you what I have going on. In addition to working on new material for my band, I do a weekly podcast called The Lipstick Panel that does ranking of songs on albums for the most part. We've done episodes on FF1 to FF2, Grandia, and Chrono Trigger. By the way, I appeared on Greg's podcast for the ranking of the Chrono Trigger OST. So if you want to check out that episode, 
kind of get a sense for their structure and their style over there. It's a good podcast. Um, he says here, though, I will warn you for some younger viewers that we primarily cover rock albums, so the discussion can become explicit as we discuss certain lyrical concepts. However, what I want to share this week is a swan song to book club. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, we had a book club. It's being canceled after this week's meeting, so um, that's what he's referring to there. I've greatly enjoyed my time in book club and recorded a little ditty a couple weeks back as a peace offering of sorts to Mike and Kaysen because I realized they may have come off too harsh on the Silmarillion. I know they weren't really concerned and it was just a spirited discussion, but I wanted to show my appreciation for Middle Earth as a fan. For the record, I like the Silmarillion, I like The Hobbit, my favorite of the Middle Earth writings, and I like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, both books and films. I also love the score for the movies and decided to mess around with one of the major themes using a MIDI keyboard. I wanted to show my appreciation for the greatness of Middle Earth saga, and I thought this might be a fun way to do it. I, want, uh, I wanted the piece to sound like Bruce Falconer from Dragon Ball Z or Vince DiCola, Rocky IV, and instead sounded like 80s Paul McCartney, but that's still fine with me. It was a very quick piece I did for fun, the goal to bring a different perspective to the piece that, hadn't been, uh, that I hadn't heard before. So hopefully, even if you don't like, care for it, it allows you to look at a composition in a slightly different way. It was a fun little experiment. Enjoy. So let's play his, uh, actually, I think I have it up here. Let's listen to his uh, Lord of the Rings cover, the Shire synth. I love the Shire theme, it's so good. Okay, we're gonna pause there. But uh, if you're part of the Discord, you can go ahead and, and uh, click the link there in the community story section. And this will, of course, be in the description on the YouTube upload as well as in the audio-only upload. So there's an old thing there. Thank you, Greg, for that. It's been good discussing books with you in the book club. Uh, for those who want to tune in for the last week of book club, that's going to be on Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. As Mugenhead Ninja says here, this song's good no matter what. <laughs> yes, it is. The melody is amazing. Anyways, uh, that is the end of today's podcast. Um, it actually was a little shorter than I expected it to be. Still about the two-hour mark, but I, I thought it would go on a little bit longer than it did, but uh, uh, it came out good. Um, if there's anything else that you guys want to ask me before moving on or anything you want to say in relation to the topic, please feel free to do so now. Um, we have... Uh, see simon jhm no wait it was above that benedict benedict musical and stuff i didn't look at the musical part of it so this makes sense uh benedict's music and stuff musical and stuff says i've i've literally been writing a video game rpg piece of music right now and this is giving me things to think about well cool uh 
share your your music your music in the discord in the community stories when you're done with it and we'll play it on a podcast um lego dog says i may be recording a game ost podcast today <laughs> um lego dog says so this was really coincidental that we happened to be talking about this i'll ask this question when we record okay looks like um we're about done everyone said their piece i'll go back through i usually go back through and watch the podcasts again after they're done and i read through all the the chat so if you feel like oh he didn't see my chat generally what happens is i'll go back through and rewatch, especially to find if there's anything i said that was incorrect that i might want to cut out on the upload to youtube so i go back through on uh on twitch and i i watch and i read through all the comments so I will definitely get to read all of your comments if I didn't see them and uh, call them out, I guess, on stream. But in any case, thank you guys for watching. Thank you for your support of the channel. Um, it means a lot to me uh, that we can have so many people interested in these uh, discussion topics and, and uh, you know, the insight that you provide as well. Um, I really appreciate it. So have a great rest of your weekend, being Sunday. <laughs> uh, Good luck this week at work or school or wherever you're at. Um, wish you the best, and we'll see you again next time. Peace out.